we'll start with Kelly Brown. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. It's been uh, it's been an interesting year, uh, but uh, as we build towards the tail end of our season, it's uh, it's all go, and and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you at this time uh, and get some of your reflections on that as well. We've also got Chris Gibson here with us. How you doing, Chris? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for um, thanks for the invite. Uh, the same with myself. It's it's been a, it's been a challenging year um, in and around uh, some sports clubs, but uh, you know it's great to see the light at the end of the tunnel coming. Hopefully, uh, and, and being able to allow uh, fans and players to. Have a great season next year. Yeah, amen to that. I think we're a bit of a joke, aren't we? Uh, an Australian, a Scotsman, and an Englishman walk into a bar, isn't that the? Uh, I keep doing this with episodes. I keep pulling together everyone. We're missing an Irishman and a Welshman. Yeah, fair point. You know, as long as it's uh, as long as it's not the Scots, it's the butt of the joke. You know, that's the that's the thing. Yeah. Well, I'm lost then. That was all I had. <laughs> Lads, we're going to talk about creating and sustaining the conditions for success. This is something that we're all passionate about. We've had conversations about in the past uh, amongst us. Uh, and we owe Meg Popovic a huge thank you for introducing, or at least I owe her a thank you for introducing me to both of you. But Chris, let's start with you. You did some international award-winning work in the military. That is a really strong jumping off point for this conversation around creating the conditions for success and, and specifically around leadership. So I'd love it if you could just tell us the work that you did and what it led to. Cheers. Well, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I mean, so... I mean, I'll just rewind from that and give you a bit of a, a backstory. I um, I left the school. I left school with no qualifications. Ended up going to do um, try to get into university. No chance. Went in and joined the army as a private soldier and worked my way up. Um, ended up doing some special duties for about eighteen years. Got a bit too fat and old to uh, kick doors in, and um, ended up joining the medics. And I uh, got a bit of an education around that. And uh, found myself running um, an organisation based in Yorkshire, which con conducted governance and assurance um, of medical capabilities that either we sent to the far shore to conduct operations or we, we held at readiness uh, to, to go to the far shore. And um, part of, of, of that process was basically bringing in um, the, the complete unit that was deploying uh, and putting them through a, a series of simulation simulated exercises to using a sort of crawl walk run philosophy where we picked up the pace as we went through learned lessons really fast and built the leadership um, of the organization to have the moral courage and psychological safety to create the conditions for success um, and it really was us um, pushing the boundaries of medicine, push, pushing the boundaries of international collaboration in medicine, um, all based around the, the capability we sent to Helmand province in Afghanistan. This became the busiest trauma hospital in the world and, and it created the highest survival rates in the history 
of medicine that 98.6% of any patient that went in there came out alive, which um, w- w- which is better than you'll probably get down your, to your nearest uh, hospital in, in, in any major city in, in, in the first world. So we, we did that um, really not by providing them with the sharpest scalpels or the, the, the ivory plated uh, suction tools. It w- was all about looking at the, the leadership philosophy uh, uh, and learning from mistakes that were happening to ensure that they were uh, noted and built into the training uh, for the next iteration that went out. And um, we think we sent out to Afghanistan about um, 40 to 50 hospitals. And uh, we were just coming to the end of of that capability, um, which had won a, a few awards when uh, Ebola started to raise its head in West Africa. Our initial thoughts were this this was not for us. The MG, NGO community with Medicine Sans Frontieres uh, leading the way felt that they had it under control. Uh, so we stepped back um, to be told at really short notice that we, we were on point and we had to um, go again. And um, I think the reality was we didn't know anything about Ebola. Um, I'd been in I'd been in Central Africa when uh, there'd been an Ebola outbreak in Kikwit um, in Zaire, so I'd seen the disease and I'd been in Sierra Leone for a number of years during um, the civil war, so I knew the country, um, but we didn't know much about the treatment of of Ebola virus disease, but we did know how to train and we did know how to lead, so um, that, that that led us to to going again. And knowing that if we got the leadership of um, right, we we could we could get the organisation to perform to a high standard, and we 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 did it again. We we achieved um, the highest rating that the World Health Organisation had ever given, which was a hundred percent governance uh, rating. So we 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 thought we had something that was really quite special about how we trained our organisations, and and for me it was. It, it always sort of felt like it would link to other places, and I'd I'd got a few tasks through government to go and sort or support with, and and, and that should turned out to be the case. But my passion was always in sport and, and being around uh, those that were um, motivated to do their best, and I thought there was a real connection between sport and and the military and. I, and it wasn't just telling war stories or telling tales. It was, it was really the philosophy of, of trying to win. And, and, and three components for me that stood out was sort of competition, uh, diffidence, the, 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 the argument, the, the, the confrontation, and, and then the win, the glory. So competition, diffidence, and glory for me were the three components that seemed to match right across. And we're also unique in the military and in sport that we, we have a gap. We can learn from our last performance. We can adopt that learning into our training and we can go in again, you know, better placed to take on the opposition and, and, and perform to a higher standard each time. I don't think anyone else, I can't think of another profession where you have that luxury to do that. So, it, so it's all about doing it to, to, in the most efficient way. And I'm sure Kelly, you know, spends ages looking at how to get after the opposition after you know, and, and looking after action reviews of, of performances. But but for me, I think there's lots of crossover military-wise and interprofessional sport. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Chris. Um, 
in terms of the crossovers, uh, as you said, and and the thing I just want to pick on or just pick up at the end. So we do spend a lot of time analysing opposition for strengths and weaknesses, opportunities, threats, all this sort of stuff. You know, the old SWOT analysis. But for me, I think a lot of that is the um, it's the item on the cake, and the most important thing is what is what we are doing in the club, in the environments, every single day. So what sort of environments are we working in? What sort of environments are we creating? And what sort of environments are we living? Because I don't believe we can, we can just sort of switch it on and switch it off. I think it's something that, that, that as individuals and as a collective, you know, we need to really live. Um, and so it's Saracen. So we 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 speak a lot about the Saracens' way and about and about sort of how we do things and why we do things in that way. And I tend to find from all my experiences in professional sports over the last sort of 17, 18 years, I tend to find if um, if if the process is good and if the environment is good, then Nine times out of ten, it's going to lead to a pretty good performance on the Saturday, um, and so that's something. It's something at the club, you know, we we spend a lot of time on, and it's something, and it's something that we speak about all the time, really. So, Kelly, what is the Saracens' way? Because I, I want to just poke on that a little bit because a lot of the a lot of the listeners of this show will be in North America and, and even Australia be familiar with the club, but maybe not know a whole heap about it like we do in the UK. So, you know, very iconic club um, that's done some amazing things, but yeah. How do you define the Saracens way? I don't think it's not a one sentence answer that. Um, I think really, so for your listeners that don't know, you know, Saracens is a rugby club in the UK and rugby went professional in about 95 or 96. And Saracens then had 15 years of having some of the best players in the world. And they didn't win anything. And they didn't win anything. And they were and they were seen as a mid-table club, a big spending mid-table club that, you know, if the big players, if they all clicked, they could win, you know, the odd game or whatever, but they were never really going to challenge at the end of the season. And then all this changed in 2009. And so and so a new chief executive and a new director of rugby came in and they sort of transformed not only Saracens, but really is they transformed the, the thoughts with... Um, rugby clubs around sort of how how rugby clubs uh, how they should operate and how they can operate and so there's two things I really want to touch on first and then we can go into detail in all of them so a, a big thing about Saracens that sort of really struck me when I first came to the club is they said um, is is they said we will treat you unbelievably well, and and all we ask in return is that you work unbelievably hard, and that was the trade-off, and that was very different to any environment I'd been in, where where 
in sport, it's a lot of, okay, we'll treat them, it's we'll treat them mean to keep them keen. At Saracens, it was the exact opposite. It's to say, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to treat you well and we'll help you and your family um, because we believe that if we do this, then it's going to put you in a better place. If you're in a better place, you'll play better on the weekend. But all we ask is that you work incredibly hard for it. So that was the, that was the first thing. And the second thing that is, that is huge um, at Saracens, it's the values. It's the values of, of honesty, humility, discipline, and uh, work rates. And so those are values that we go back to back to all the time. We go back to time and time and time and time and time again. And it's values that we teach our under 15 players, our under 16 players. So we'll teach them rugby and we'll teach them how to play rugby. But a huge part of it as well is we speak about our values and the sorts of values and behaviours that, that are expected to be a Saracens player. And... And originally, there was only three. And so there was honesty, discipline, and, and work rate. And then after the first year, we added humility because if you have that as one of your major values, it always gives you space to grow because you never think you've cracked it because you're staying, because you're humble and you know there's always somewhere you can go. So that, that's in a nutshell, I would have said was the foundation of the Saracens way 11 years ago. And it still is the foundation, but like anything, it, it evolves and it grows. And it's something that that's for myself and every, and every individual in the organization um, actively thinks about and tries to improve every day and tries to ensure that we're really, really living and breathing it. And then it's not just a load of words uh, up on a wall somewhere. Yeah. So you've both said some really interesting things there that I think are still as much as the three of us talk about them, they're still quite counter to the way that a lot of people think about leadership. Chris, you talked about, you know, it wasn't the sharpest scalpels and the, you know, the, the perfectly shine, shiny, trays and and all of that that really changed your environment and then kelly you barely mentioned rugby there at all and um yes there is skill and yes there is tactics and yes there are game reviews and and there are you know play upgraded players and internet bringing in internationals and, and all that sort of stuff but those things become commoditized so quickly in competitive environments that everyone can have them. And, and I find like, I find at the moment that has the speed of that commoditization has become astronomical in the world. So, you know, you can be, you can be Facebook and release a new feature today and then tomorrow, you know, some kid in his basement has replicated it and is selling it at the same, same cost that you can or cheaper and it, you know, so that, that those features and um, the things that the, the, that economic model that we've kind of been going on in leadership 
you know, the, the production line idea of, of leadership is so far gone now, but I feel like leaders are still having a challenge in putting their focus onto the environment and saying, actually, if we tend to the environment, if we water the grass and we take care of the fence and we make sure that the cows can't get out and they're fed and they're cared for and they're loved and they've got their, their friends around them, they're going to grow up to be bigger cows than if, you know, if we just tended to the cow, if that makes sense. Where does that mindset shift come in for you, Chris? Like I'm sure you would have seen this and this maybe was a confronting part of the work that you did in terms of, no, no, let's tend to the, tend to the garden, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, for me, there's three components that make up a, a fighting capability or, 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 or a cohesive organization that can go forward and win. And, and um, it tends to be that one is negated. Um, and, and exactly as you were saying, so the physical component is, is reasonably easy to fix, which is all the equipment and the infrastructure that you can, you can buy off the shelf or you can get the latest technology to support you in, in your efforts. The second component, um, which, which there's been strides on, but it, we, it, in my view, is the conceptual component of an organization where you're looking at your tactics, techniques, and procedures, um, be that after action reviews or, 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 or your tactics to take on um, the next set of opposition. But the, the golden thread running through all of this for me is the moral component. Uh, and if you get the moral component of your organization right, using the values that Kelly just highlighted, the military of British military have very similar ones. There's courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty, and selfless commitment. And, and, and we serve as test. You know, we live those in the military. If, if people fall short, there's a consequence to it because the organization will, will not bend to their standard. It's the organizational standard that's agreed that we live. So, so we, we live that through enhancing the moral component. And, and when, when I was leading the Ebola uh, training and assurance, I was, I got that wrong. I, I, and I learned a real, a real lesson around it. Um, I wasn't investing in the moral component. I, I, I was too interested in telling government that we were getting it right and not telling our people that we were getting it right and giving them the confidence to operate. And um, for, for me, um, at, at the individual level, there's two components. There's the fit to operate, that the technical knowledges and skills and attitudes as an individual, but there's also the survive to operate, where you give them the the, the, the fitness to deliver psychologically, understand the individual, how they perform, how they operate, and, and you create the conditions for success and ensuring that that is allowed to thrive, not just survive. Uh, and so if we can get the fit and survive bits right, we, we can see them flourish. And, Certainly with Ebola, I was so convinced and fixated and telling government that we were we were doing well, that, that I was not getting after that survive to operate component. Uh, and, and, and they weren't performing as a team, as a cohesive unit. It was only when I started finding a, a way of, of assuring them that they would be safe in, in what we were asking them to do uh, and, and that we get, got the freedom to, uh, we gave them the freedom to, to perform to the best of their ability. And, and, and once we'd worked that out, um, it, it went from strength to strength. And, and it, you know, it was a, a world-leading capability. Um, 
And that was a real hard lesson for me that, that, I, that I wasn't focusing on that moral component. I was too interested in the physical and the conceptual and telling and going up and out the organization to say how good we were. And I wasn't going down and in to get after the people to make them feel safe, which gave them the freedom of movement to really deliver above and beyond. And did you find, Chris, so when you, when you realized that, and, yeah. you, and so I take it, you, you changed your, um, your approach or your outlook, and you said, no, no, I need to look after these people as well. And, and, yeah. and did you find, um, as a consequence of doing that, there was a big uplift in performance? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, uh, basically, I went after showing them. So I, 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 I built a full facsimile of the capability in West Africa that they're going to operate in. Very much standard uh, fare for how we did our business. Um, but what I introduced into it was, was a, a, an ultraviolet dye that would dissipate on contact with chlorine. And I introduced that into simulated actors or patient populations into samples that they were taking in, in, into the whole gambit. So I, I created a, a simulated virus where um, if, you know, and this all sounds, this, this four or five years ago sounded, you know, really quite alien. Now in, in, in a COVID landscape, it sounds quite standard fare. But, um, but you know, and what, what we did, we, we'd conduct 24 hours of, of patient flow with simulated patients uh, and uh, the hospital would be running as it would, would be out in West Africa. And, but when they came to doff their equipment, we would screen them. And we'd screen them with um, ultraviolet light, which would pick up this radiating uh, uh, simulate, simulant and as they took off their equipment, we would scan them again, and we'd we'd capture every component of where these these contaminated spots were occurring, and we we'd go through the video to anal analyze exactly how that contamination occurred. Um, by the end, by the end of it, we were we were seeing no contamination once doffed at all. So we they started to get the confidence that the drills we had created. Would keep them up safe from this, you know, cat four pathogen, which, which had a, you know, a mortality rate of something like ninety five percent at the time. So you know, it was one of the world's and still is one of the world's most deadly diseases. Um, but we could prove to them that what we were asking them to do was not putting them at undue risk because the procedures we created gave them the confidence to operate. And we also spent a lot of time speaking with them over the ethics of what we were doing and the level of care we were trying to push to. So that, and they had a voice in it. So, so the conversations, like you were saying, Kelly, talking, talking with the players gave them the confidence to live, live the philosophy that you're trying to create. I think as well, the big thing is that sticks out from what you said there was as well, as you said, as you said, the level of care. And that was, and that, is something that I think is, uh, I think, it's huge, and indeed, in, all, um, in any group, in any organisation, and it's something that is quite often neglected because it's almost seen as being, as being a soft word, maybe as being, as being no, 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 but that's not being really focused and really driven and really looking to improve, yeah. improve the performance. And it's actually, it's one of the points on the 
uh, Saracen. So one of the points on the vision, on the mission statement, is something like to be to be the most innovative, hardworking, and caring sports organization in the world. And so that yeah. word, that care, I think is is so important, and it plays a big part of my own of my own personal coaching philosophy, but also it's a big, it's a big part of the club and how the club operates. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't come without challenge for me, you know, it, it's care with challenge. You know, we're going to challenge people to achieve great things, but, but, you know, it, 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 it allows them to stop that self-limiting component that you, you're giving them the freedom to, build self-belief and confidence that you know will push them to to where they've not been before because the potential has been seen when you brought these players in yeah. this is why you want them in the team yeah and um you know but but it's a you know i think there's the it's all, all sports teams that are after incremental gains as said dave basement said and 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 for me there's a huge gain still to be tapped into through doing this properly and i know that meg popovic you know was doing a great job it Maple Leafs with, with this type of work and and I think in rugby and and in football as well that there's there's that there is definitely a delta to close um, by tapping into this. You, you probably see it, coach. The stuff you you're doing and you know I've seen it in your books and and listened to some of the podcasts. It seems to be an emerging theme. It is, and that's what I was going to ask Kelly off the back of that was through your career you've kind of lived this transition yeah. right like we we had this world um you know i think we're roughly the same age and and came up through quite i'll call it maybe masculine led um leadership uh in aussie rules and rugby and, and what we did was we conflated ruthless competitiveness with harshness yeah. or like we said earlier, like treat them mean, keep them keen. And that was, that was how teams were motivated. That's how players were motivated. And then, you know, in rugby, especially it's been really interesting to watch. So you went from that in, you know, even the nineties through the professionalization era to now you're seeing, you know, um, breath or breathing rings you know and like team breathing in between tries and um you know i don't know if you caught the uh the video that was going around on social media recently about um you know the brumbies player that missed the kick after the the final whistle and and everyone the rest of the team come and hug him they lose the game and they come and hug him um so you've moved from this like really harsh environment to this safe place for people to be. Um, so yeah, just talk about your experience through that because you've been the one living it at the highest standard. Yeah. And the first thing that I just want to say, I just want to say on that is care. Um, it's so it's a part, it's a part of it and it's a really important part, but as Chris said, as a coach, as a leader, is your job is also to drive standards. It's also to push people to be better, to challenge them. Um, and the players at times are going to have to be tough, like, like as you do in life, is you've got to be tough. And it can't always just be, oh, there, 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 it's okay. You know, at times, you know, you need to... Um, 
as I said, you need to push players up and you need to challenge players. But my point being, if you care about a player and if the player knows that you care about them, then I believe that they're going to be more inclined to really push themselves and to really see the levels that that they can possibly they can possibly go to because the fear of failure is cut down massively if they know as a coach I've got their back. Another thing I would always speak about to the players is the concept of a skill error and an effort error. And this was something I got told in my first ever meeting at Saracens at a team meeting. I went in and the coach stood up and said, boys, there's two types of errors. He said, there's a skill error and there's an effort error. He says, if you make a skill error, so if it's a bad pass, if it's a missed tackle, anything like that, he said, that's on us. It's on us as coaches because our job as coaches is to help you get better, is to give you the tools to perform the skills that you need to perform. However, if you make an effort error, so if it's a missed tackle because you've been lazy working in position and so you've not been in the right position to make that tackle, or if it's a penalty in the breakdown because you've not worked hard enough, if you do that, that is entirely on you. And we can come down hard on you for that. And I just loved that. I thought it was amazing because it just frees you up. It frees you up. So I remember after the meeting, I went up to the coach and I said, so are you telling me that as long as I work hard, as long as I try my absolute hardest, I can't screw up? And he said, yeah. And I was just sold on that concept because what an amazing way to take to take you know, the pressure off players and to really get players to buy in and go for it because the fear of failure is just cut down. It's cut down so much. Um, and so that was a, that's a big thing. Now, the challenge you have as a coach is, is when does the skill error become an effort error? So, and that could be... So if the player is a poor is a poor passer, it's a skill error at first, but if that player's passing doesn't improve, it's because they're not doing it enough, or it's because or it's because you know they're not working hard enough on it. And that's the challenge as a coach is to differentiate those those at times. But I I believe the skill error, effort error thing, I think is um is a brilliant way to approach it. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I think that's really the environment that we're living in now, isn't it? Where you've got this hyper individualism that needs to take place. So you need to, yes, you have your, your organizational values, but, you know, underneath that, you've got a bunch of individuals who are interpreting those values differently based on their own histories. They, they bring their own skills, they bring their own strengths, and we're trying to heighten those at the same time as driving team results. And so how, how did you manage that process, Chris, in terms of, you know, on the floor with all these medics, it's obviously very similar in that you've got that team element, you've got the individual element, they're bringing their own fears, for instance, of the, a virus, for instance, which, you know, isn't the same thing for each person, but, 
removing that so that they can perform at their best as a team. So taking away that kind of individual trauma, if you will, so that they can perform for those around them. Yeah, it was, it was a real challenge, but, you know, speaking with them and, and, uh, and so I had, uh, I was given five weeks to design, procure, train, assure, deploy and operate uh, this capability. Um, so time was really short and um, I, I was being questioned on everything I put into the training program. But one thing I, I was absolutely adamant I wasn't taking out was time to to discuss the the ethics of what we were doing and to the standards that we wanted to achieve, so that we could collectively agree what would be what good would look like. What would it look like if we got this right? How near or far were we from it? And what did we do? To, what did we need to do today together? to get after that and, and close it down. And, and when we've mutually agreed that, we, we had buy-in because everyone that was there, you know, wanted to be there and, and everyone that was there want, wanted to do their best. So we had, you know, a talented pool that we just needed to align in the right direction uh, so that they could get get after it, and and the way I initially you know, talked about sort of fit to operate and survive to operate, we, we went to the next stage, which was converge to operate, where we started working with departments. So if you you know in, in sport, working with the backs, the midfield, and, and and the forwards, we took them away and we worked with them separately to look at their strengths and areas for development against what we had mutually agreed. Uh, and where the gaps lie, we tried to close them really quickly. Uh, and, and we wanted people to be safe to critique so that they could understand how to get better. You know, and, and they self started to self-police and drive the standard up. But they drove it up in a really safe way. I mean, that all sounds like Nirvana. There was, a, there was bumps in the road, of course there was. There always will be. You know, you were trying to lead a, a, a either... A, you know, we were trying to lead a world lead, leading capability with a with, with a, a really great reputation, and there was times when I had pushback. And you can't keep everyone happy all of the time. If if you want to do that, go and sell ice cream, because you're not going to lead a, a military organization. You're certainly not going to lead a professional sports team. There will be pushback, and you, you've got to be ready for it. And uh, and and for me, it, I found that really difficult because I'd never really experienced it to the, the standard I got on this on this project on this operation um I, and i don't know much about physics but i do know that friction is wasted energy and i wasted way too much energy on trying to resolve it uh, where i should have just moved moved those very 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 small number of individuals out and and, and went with the main body of the kirk um because they were on board um but you know we we absolutely got there and we got people people doing amazing things um, uh, and that facility when deployed operated like like a really well-oiled machine um, which you know which made me really proud of, of, of those that stepped over the line to, to face danger um, but but it was all it was all about sort of going from the individual component to the converge to operate where we were doing doing departments small teams and then combining at the tip of the spear 
uh, all aligned to 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 get after the enemy uh, or the opposition, uh, which which in this case was a you know which was a virus, but it absolutely translates into sport. It absolutely translates into sport. I, 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 one of the projects I was given by government was um, uh, to help with a thing called the Ten Prison Project, which was to look at the reduction, reducing the violence in ten most violent prisons in England. And um, you, you know, when you get these tasks, you're like, how how the hell do you get after that? But but actually, it just comes down to that moral component. And when we really looked at it, it wasn't about the prisoners; it was about the, the staff that kept us safe uh, and their confidence and competence to carry out core tasks was 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 zero. In fact, we did a Likert scale uh, survey on, on on all of these ten prisons, and uh, their confidence and competence came back at between zero and two out of ten. So that's what the world looked like to them, and that's why they weren't performing to the standard that they could. Um, so so we, we you know we immediately found what the problem was. You just get after the you know you just solution it from there, and uh, you know. It, Strangely enough, we got it down in, in, in nine out of ten uh, within six months, just by by reinforcing that moral component. When Chris, when teams call you, sporting teams, yeah, what do they call you for? Like, what's the thing? Is there a trend? I mean, I know you could consult on a whole range of different things, but is there a consistent theme that they're struggling yeah. with? Well, strangely enough, they never call when they're doing well. But um, so isn't you that, always know. Isn't that strange? Because that's the first thing, first thing they'll tell you, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But uh, usually it, it's alignment of supporting elements. You know, I, I'm, you know, I have, don't have the skills that Kelly has. I, I don't have the experience that Kelly has. Um, so I never go um, to get after supporting the first team players directly. What I do go after is this this converge to, and then combine to operate where all of the supporting elements need to be aligned to help get the ball in the back of the net more times than it currently is or over the post more times than it currently is. Because, you know, it, you'll have heard it before, but if you can improve each department by 1%, you, you would take it. You would absolutely take it because there's a tangible difference on the pitch, and uh, so what I go in to do is usually support the vision uh, and values, and making sure that they're absolutely aligned. I look at the psychological safety um, around the players, and then I look at the supporting departments and I help them try to align to deliver within within that vision and values, um, and uh, and challenge them to show me how they do it to the best of their ability always in a friendly way of course <laughs> but yeah so that that's really what they asked me to do and I, I've, done, I've done quite a few now and, uh, and it seems to resonate well it, it, it seems to support um because you, you the departments that support the players tend to not have the same investment as as the players directly do, yet they're seen as a as a valuable contributing factor to success. So why wouldn't you invest in in, in aligning those those departments and individuals within them to perform to the best of their ability, um, and making sure that they're actually in the head of the head coach, so they understand what the head coach wants and what good looks like to the head coach. So they're not spending superfluous time trying to deliver effect which is misaligned to the head coach's requirements. 
Uh, I see that a lot. They, they do what they think is required and not what is required. And it's a whole load of nugatory effort. I don't know if you see that, Kelly, in your travels and in coaching and stuff where people think they're aligned to what you're after, but it's not exactly what you're after. But it just, yeah, yeah, certainly when you see or you coach academy players or young academy players, a lot of the time is um, an example of that is they'll tell you, you ask a question and they'll tell you what they think, you know, what the answer, you know, they think that you want is, as opposed to, as opposed to, as opposed to what, what they actually think. And so you do find that, that quite a lot. Um, but it's something that we speak about a lot. And the big, and the big question that I think helps them to learn or helps them to understand is if we ask why. Like, so why do we do this? Why do we do that? And that, I think, is a, is a huge question for any, um, for like any organization, for any young young athlete or sports person or whatever, ask the question, why? Why do we do this? Okay, because by asking that question is you truly understand the value of it. And so there might be certain things. So, so uh, I've explained already, so our values. So we added humility. Why did we add that? Well, because if we've got that, it always gives you space to grow. And so, and so a young player or, or anyone coming into our, our organization is they might see that value. And if they don't understand why it's there, then it's going to be difficult for them to really buy into it, to really exhibit the sort of behaviors that we want all of our, um, all of the club to show. And so that's the importance, I believe, of ask the why, and then it helps everyone to understand, and then it hopefully helps helps everyone, all of the players, all of the staff, all yeah. of the various departments to be as aligned as they possibly can be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting for me. You know, the key is that the, the, it not just being a poster on a wall. It's yeah. taking those words and, and living them. And I'm on the faculty for the pro license, um, the leadership faculty for pro license. And one of the questions I ask all of the candidates on, on, on the course is, tell me about the vision of your club. I, I, and I can tell you now <laughs> that not many know it, which is really interesting when, you know, for me, it provides that ultimate sense of purpose and direction and motivation for all like, all activity it should be all shaped around it so you know what why why don't people know it i know that when stan mccrystal was senior general in afghanistan he used to fly in and he'd go and speak to one of the most junior soldiers on any patrol base he went in and said you know what what's, my, what's your what, what's my purpose or what's your purpose here what's my vision and if they didn't know it there was there was hell to pay because there was a blockage in you know in that information getting down to that most junior member of you know, that most junior soldier on a patrol base. Because if he couldn't tell them there was something going wrong and he would get after that really quickly. What's your experience, Cody, around sort of seeing that, the difference from it sort of not turning into action? Yeah, you've struck on something there that I wanted to raise. You know, 
I'm working at the moment exclusively with head coaches uh, at the elite levels. And one of the things that I ask is, have you ever presented how you think about coaching? Like what is coaching? Have you ever given your players not how you're going to coach them, but what is coaching? What is your mental model as a coach in terms of what you're trying to achieve, how you deliver it, what is leadership and give that mental model to the players so they understand uh, where you're coming from before you even get to the minutia of what the sport is, you know, the, the domain knowledge that you need to impart on them. And the answer at 100% is no, I've never done anything like that. And I think that's a missed opportunity for a lot of coaches in that, again, you need to factor in that everyone is bringing their own interpretation of leadership, of coaching, of the way a coach acts, of uh, what a coach is going to pass on, how you respond. People are bringing that from their own lives into your lecture theatre while they're sitting there. So if they've had bad experiences with authority figures in the past from their life, they might have had a, I don't know, a teacher they didn't like or, a, you know, troubles at home or an authoritarian father or mother figure or whatever, that comes to the training facility with them. And so that is, I think, part of the major breakdown between coaches and players is that we don't even start at just the basic level of before we even get to the organizational values. Here's how I think about coaching, about leadership, about how I'm going to try to get across to you. Can we agree on this? If you guys are okay with this, we're going to go forward with it and I'll coach you that way. Um, I think that's a really big missed opportunity. And you, at the very start of the show, Chris, you said you used, you know, the, the crawl, walk, run yeah. methodology. Like that's the yeah. crawl. Here's what coaching is. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if any, any players ever sat in a presentation. I was like, here's what coaching is. Uh, here's the world that I live in. Here's how I interpret the game. Here's how I've seen this game develop over the last 40 years and how I've acquired the knowledge that I'm going to pass on to you. Really good place to start crawling yeah and what's what's the feedback when you when you when you highlight that is a sort of a light bulb moment that shit i've been I've, <laughs> there's lots more i can be doing here well it's just an awareness thing right i, I think you know every coach has had yeah. those thoughts and they that's all they think about consistently is how do i get this message across how do i deliver this message yeah. how do we how do we tweak things here? And the great thing is it's such a, an achievable thing for every coach, yeah. you know, and it's got nothing to do with how smart you are on the X's and O's. It's just how you think about the relationship, yeah. the, the player to play, uh, coach to player relationship, coach to coach relationship. Yeah. Um, and so it's just putting those ideas down and then delivering them so that you can work off the same mental model. What's your thoughts on staff empowerment in, in professional sport from, from a sort of leadership perspective? Um, the reason I ask is, you know, people think the military are really 
you know, it's a really hierarchical organization. We don't give any freedom of movement to people, but I don't, you know, I see less in professional sport than I saw in the military. I saw less empowerment of people because it just seems to be a little bit more anxiety around job security, around, you know, making a mistake. Um, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. I, I think it's, um, I think it's massive and I think it comes down to trust. I mean, it's obviously, it's hugely based on, yeah. on trust. And I read a book a few years ago about it. I think it was, was it Stephen Covey or whatever. It's the speed of trust. And just the importance of having, of having trust in a coaching group, in an organization. And so, and so basically everyone knows what their, what their area is and giving that person the, yeah. the freedom to run with it. Um, and then, and I guess, well, this would, uh, I directed Cody, so I've never been, um, I've not yet been a head coach, but I guess the skill is to, is to give other coaches that freedom and then as the head coach just to sort of round it all up or merge it into the overall, uh, into the overall package. Is that correct, uh, Cody, or what's your experiences? Yeah, especially nowadays. Uh, I mean, the amount of departments we have in professional sport now, you know, it wasn't too long ago that it was basically the head coach, right? And the head coach would fill the water bottles, put the cones out, put the balls out, maybe pump up the balls. And now you've got a whole staff doing that. You've got analytics, you've got medical, you've got, you know, the GM now who negotiates the contracts you've got you know and and so it's it's basically gotten to the point where head coaches at the top levels are essentially ceos they're managing departments more than they're actually doing the job and i think that's a big part of the the shift that people are struggling to make but then going back to what you were talking about chris it's hilarious to me actually that we don't make this link between a coach needs to sell trust to the playing group, but a coach has no trust from the organization. So they, you know, like, I mean, geez, you, you're on the, the coaching badges, you know, those guys are going to work maybe three months if they're lucky in a gig. Like <laughs> they, if they get, if they get to six months, they're in like Arsene Wenger territory now. Like that's the longest tenure you've got. Like that is, nuts from a leadership perspective that uh you know you've got to go in turn the ship around completely in three to six months like i get it we're here to win but the you know we're talking about what the conditions are to achieve success and we've talked about caring more we've talked about values we've talked about psychological safety so the coach has to impart all of that on the players and then receives none of that from the organization. Who yeah. seems stead, stead, you know, dug in in appointments as well in the main. The, the, the you know, director of sport, the chief executive, the chief commercial, you know, complete lack of anxiety over future or or, or, or position because they're not in the firing line <laughs> yet. So they can deliver mediocrity and be safe. Um, whereas the head coach is absolutely in between the crosshairs. Yeah. And I think it's a, 
and this goes back to what Kelly was talking about there. I think there's, I think it's a Charlie Munger quote, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the behavior. Well, if the incentive is that my job is on the line every single day, even when I'm Claudio Ranieri and I've just delivered you the Premier League and then six months later I'm out. If that's, if that's the incentive, then I'm going to be, I'm not going to trust anyone. I'm, I'm going to pull as much of this close to me as possible. I'm not going to trust any of the assistants that I don't know and, and have a relationship with. I'm going to bring in my own people. And so if you continue to serve up this incentive to people, your job is always on the line. You're going to drive that behavior. Uh, it happens over and over again. And so I think Kelly, that's, that's really the ultimate point is that I think there's a way out of that loop for coaches to be able to really get into the nuts and bolts of like disseminating work and understanding and trust and care to assistant coaches and department heads. If they can get some trust from the organization and some belief and, and for someone to actually see out a contract, <laughs> like, wouldn't that be lovely? No, it's true. And it's probably, well, it's definitely exaggerated in the football world. I would imagine, Chris, so you're in that world. And, and yeah, it's very, very difficult, I guess. One thing as Saracens we have, we've had, we've had a, a pretty similar, pretty similar coaching group for the last sort of 10 or 11 years. Um, people, and people that have come into the group have, have by and large been players at the club and then have retired and stepped into the group. And that's something, um, and that's another thing at Saracens that they really try and do a lot of is they try and, is they try and plan succession from within at every level. And so again, that comes back to it's a long-term view. It's not a short-term right. We've got to win on Saturday. It's a long-term view. Now, I'm aware, ultimately, in professional sport, it's about the result, and it is that. But it's just something I believe, as a club, that Saracens have been very good at is taking the pressure off that and and really putting the focus on the process because that's ultimately all you can control is the process is what you do now to make you better tomorrow to make you better the next day etc etc and as opposed to focusing purely on the outcome and because if it's if it's constantly about that as you said the turnover of coaches is going to be incredibly high fellas i could chat to you all day um but why don't we start to wrap up here the question that i ask everyone that comes on the show is away from this world, you know, leadership or rugby and football, what have you been captivated by at the moment? Have you found a documentary on Netflix? Have you been reading a book? Have you been learning the piano? Have you been teaching yourself Italian? Kelly, I can see you thinking about uh, making a mental list. (laughs) Why don't you go first? What have you found recently that's kind of interested you? Well, it's two things. So the first thing I've been doing, I said at the start, it's been it's been an interesting year. So a lot of my time over the pandemic has been spent moving house. Uh, it would appear I've moved. <laughs> I've actually moved house about four times this year. So that's taken up a lot of uh, a lot of my time. 
something that's actually really interesting me right now. Um, so I, I played an hour. I go into coaching, and I've always been fascinated about about becoming a commentator. And that is something that I'm thinking I'm going to start to work on and start to really challenge myself to do that uh, because something that we've not really touched on at all, but I've got a stammer and I have done since I was a little kid and uh, I've worked really, really hard on my speech. But my latest thing now is like alongside the coaching, I want to be a commentator. And so I'm going to sit I'm exploring that. I'm going to figure out how how I can make it happen. I'm going to figure out which uh, which radio station or TV channel is going to take the incredibly uh, incredibly gutsy decision of appointing a stammerer as a commentator. But um, it's a bit of a challenge. I always I always like a challenge, and that's a challenge I want to set myself and then. Uh, and we'll see where it goes. Mate, you're going to crush that. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be brilliant. Watch this space, hopefully. <laughs> it'll be brilliant, Cam. Chris, what about you? Mate, I, I, I've been I really, compared, compared to, to Kelly's, mine sounds uh, completely self-indulgent, but I'm just trying to give myself a bit of a break. Um, and um, I'm, I'm trying to get back into getting to the gym a bit more and getting to, on the golf course and just taking it easy. The, the military called me back in at the start of COVID. And I was involved in quite a bit of this sort of theory around that and trying to keep the business going and stuff has not been easy in, in lockdown. So um, I, I, I'm much more comfortable um, than I was when I first left the military about... Um, doing a consultant role around feast and famine. Um, I found that my anxiety was was way up around doing something like this, but actually it's absolutely fine and I'm really enjoying it, but I'm, I'm giving myself a break and trying to do a bit of uh, practice what I preach and uh, doing a bit of self-indulgence around the stuff that I just talked about. And, uh, and I'm enjoying it, especially in this weather we're getting in the UK just now, which is very unusual. <laughs> yeah, it is. All right, lads, uh, where can people find you? Actually, Kelly, uh, tell us about your work with, with Stammer as well. So plug that and yeah. then let everyone know where they can find you when they want to follow along with Kelly Brown. Yeah, so basically, uh, so Stammer, just very, very quickly. So um, as I've said, about, I've had a Stammer since since I was a kid. Um, it's someone I've worked I've worked really, really hard on and something I continue to work on uh, with the goal of becoming not a fluent speaker, with the goal of becoming an eloquent speaker. So um, I'm going to try and sort of hopefully at some point you'll be better than most normal speakers. Um, so in October, I, um, I, became, I became a patron for the British stammering association and that's it was just to try and is to try and help to sort of raise awareness around it uh, they reckon about one in a hundred people stammer and it's something that is not really a lot is not known about it and it's not really really understood and so i want to try and raise awareness but also also if i can help um any other people that 
that you know also um, also stammer, I'm more than happy to help, and I would love to help them. And so I can be found on Instagram and on Twitter, and my handle's the same on both. It's at Kelly D R Brown. Legend, mate. Chris, where can we find you? Um, I've got a little uh, consultancy about uh, positive well-being cultures and um, uh, and, and creating uh, high performance within teams. And it's called uh, the Growth Pod. And uh, we, we, we can be found at uh, www.growth-pod.co.uk. And... Um, if I'm, if I may, just one, one little um, add-on. I'm, I'm a patron of a uh, forces bereavement charity, which looks after um, bereaved uh, kids. And uh, I, I lost my first wife, who was served in the military, and I brought my kids up on on my own. And without this charity, I would be in a worse place uh, than I am now, as they would. Uh, they're absolutely amazing. It's called the Forces Children's Trust. And if you, any of your listeners get a chance, have a look at it. Um, they found me um, four years after and uh, they were a real lifeline in, in getting these kids back to normality after uh, the trauma that they went through. So uh, sorry for the bit of indulgence there, Cody, Kelly, but they, they do amazing things for kids that, that have had the toughest of times. So uh, proud just to be a, a link to that charity. Amazing, mate. Uh, and yeah, fellas, awesome to chat to you. Thanks for coming on, uh, as well as being people that's uh intellectually stimulating you're also absolute legends of blokes as you've just said you know the the work that you're doing out with the communities and and things that are important to you i think stands out above all the leadership stuff as well so thank you for doing that work and for um supporting others and yeah this was awesome and these can conversations are going to continue i'm sure offline uh, for the rest of the year and the years to come. So thanks for coming on Where Others Won't. Great. Thank you very much, Cody. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks, Cody. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head to codyroyal.com or find me on Twitter. And we'll see you next time.